or fill in a little bit more details of what we saw in the creation week. And that's why I say that this, what we're about to look at is really, we can take this whole section and put it back into day six towards the end of chapter one because that's exactly when this took place, the creation of woman. And God pronounces it very good. Let's read this passage that we're going to look at this evening. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God completes His previously incomplete creation. Prior to the creation of woman, Eve, He said that it is not good for man to be alone. It was incomplete. The first thing that we see in this passage, verses 18 uh, through 20, is the diversity of Adam and Eve. The diversity of Adam and Eve. Later on, we'll see the unity of Adam and Eve. But we begin in verses 18 through 20, and we see the diversity of Adam and Eve. That is that that Adam was incomplete. We see that at the very beginning of verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, what exactly is going on? Because what we do recognize that this passage is referring to the very first marriage. But does this mean that, that every man is incomplete without a woman? That is, that every man must be married. And before you answer that question, you should think of some scriptural examples of some single men specifically who were godly men. And, uh, and the first two people that come to mind are Paul and Jesus for me. Obviously, um, the, women, the woman does complete the man, and specifically Eve completed Adam, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every person has to be married. Rather, what we see here is that we are created as social creatures not to be alone in this world. And so, although it's obvious that God has provided a suitable counterpart for man, its marriage is not mandated. So, one can be right with God and not be married. So, what does God provide for this man? He provides a helper suitable for him. A helper is one who supplies strength in an area that is lacking. So, so we have someone who comes alongside of and helps fill in the gaps where Adam is lacking. Okay, so you wives can think about some ways in which you do that for your husbands. Your husbands are lacking in many different ways, aren't they? Not too many amens on that one. 
especially for my wife. But um, but 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 that's what women are designed for. They're designed to be the the counterparts. They're designed to fill in the gaps, to be helpers suitable for their their husband. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9, Man was not made for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. That is, that man was made, uh, uh, excuse me, women was made to, to complete what was lacking in man, that she was his counterpart. And so that means that in the marriage relationship, there are differing roles, differing responsibilities. But that doesn't imply differing worth, does it? as if the man is more valuable to God than the woman. If, for example, Governor Snyder was driving from Lansing to Mackinac Island and he was caught going 95 miles per hour on I-75, the police officer that was in that jurisdiction would have every right to pull him over. Now, does that mean that the police officer is a better citizen than... Governor Snyder, well, at that time, probably. But, but overall, if we want to, to measure the value of the worth of these two men, does that mean that, that the police officer is more valuable? Well, not necessarily. There's, the value is not placed on whether a person has authority over a person or not. See, the police officer has authority over the governor, but that doesn't make him more important than, and it doesn't make Governor Snyder more important than the police officer. It works both ways. And so the same thing, I think, is true in the marriage relationship. Just because the woman was made for the man to be a counterpart or a, uh, a supplier of what is lacking doesn't make the, the woman any less wor- worthy or less valuable before God. So what we find here is that Eve was not a clone of Adam. She wasn't a perfect match with Adam in the sense that she she was a clone, but, but rather she was a complimenter of Adam. Like, you know, you, you really have nice hair. Not that type of complimenter. The other type of complimenter, right? And so that's what Eve was designed for. In verses 19 through 20, we see that God shows Adam that he has a need for this woman. Look at verse 19. Out of the ground... The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. Okay, so before we see how Adam Adam recognizes that he needs a woman, um, we need to look at this verse and see what's going on. This goes along with what we talked about last week and that God gave man a responsibility that, that in a way man was made to rule over the earth, that they have some sort of kingship, in a sense, over the creation that God has, has designed, that, that man uh, was to name the animals and so on. And so this is really a, a, a restatement of what had happened on days 5 and 6, that, that, that God had formed these creatures out of the dust of the ground. And this was the verse I was trying to recall last week when I was trying to say that man and animals are alike in some way. And I was uh, bumbling through and trying to figure out what I was trying to say, but, but I think I said something like the animals had the breath of life in them and I was trying to find the verse for it. Well, that's not, that's not true. It's actually that animals were formed from the dust of the ground like man was as well. 
And so in that way, we are like animals, but we are the only creatures that have the breath of life. That's a Hebrew word that means, that's Hebrew word nephesh, which is spirit or soul. God, God breathes our soul really into us. And so um, we're unlike animals in that way. And we talked about the differences between man and animals in the sense that we are made in the image of whom? Of God, right? So animals are not. So we talked about that last week. But this is the verse I was looking for, and it's actually referring to that, the fact that animals were made from the dust of the ground. The, the idea there is that God had uh, more special care than He did with some of the other creation. He, he tended to just speak, and it came into existence. But with animals, he, he actually formed them from the dust of the ground, much like He did with Adam. But with Adam, He breathed. And then with Eve, we'll see how she is made here in just a second. So, Adam is to name these creatures. They're all brought before him, just like it seems when Noah was about to get on the ark, that all the animals were brought to him. He didn't have to go and, and uh, you know, with his whip all around the earth and try to bring all these animals into the ark. God brought them all to the ark, and the same thing seems to happen here in the garden. When God brings all the animals to pass before him, and Adam uses his, his knowledge of creation and his recall to be able to see all the animals, categorize them in a certain, uh, certain categories, and then give them names based on what kind of uh, creatures they are. And Adam seems to have this responsibility to name these creatures for several reasons. One is so that they would have names, so that he would know what to call them, that we would know what to call them. Um, verse 15 tells us that it was his responsibility. Look at verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. It seems as if part of Adam's identity is the fact that he has control over or responsibility over these animals, that he was to cultivate and keep this garden and that he was to rule over, chapter 1, verses 27 and 28 talks about him ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the the, all the creeping things on the earth. So, one of the ways that Adam demonstrated his authority was by naming these creatures. And naming something implies authority over. Right? If you, if you have, uh, or if your wife has given birth to a child, then you were responsible for naming that child. Right? God named the light day. God called the darkness night. It implied that He had, has authority over it. And the same thing is true here with Adam naming the creatures. So, part of the reason, another reason why Adam named the animals, I think, is the reason that we're going to focus on this evening, and that is that God wanted to show Adam that he needed a helper. That there was no creature that corresponded to him. Look at verse 20. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. See, in his responsibility to name all these animals, Adam realizes that there's not a helper that's suitable for him. After watching all them pass in, in front of him, he categorizes them all according to what type of animals they are. And he came away with, with two things from this exercise. One, that, that he had no partner like the animals did. All the animals had a partner. 
And yet, Adam recognized that he did not. And he recognized not only that he didn't have a partner, but he wouldn't be able to choose from any of those birds or fish or, or creeping things. None of them were suitable for him. None of them would, 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 be, um, would be helpful to him in that way. They wouldn't be his counterpart. And so God makes Eve in verses 21 through 22. Let's read those verses. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So the first thing that God does in verse 21 is he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. It seems to be the very first surgery that was performed followed by a healing because at the end of verse 21 it says that God closed up the flesh at that place. So it seems as if God's doing surgery to take the rib out and then He closes the, the, the wound back up, the, the uh, surgical wound. And just as a side note, this, this is possible proof that, that there was pain before the fall. Now, when we think about the time during the fall, we don't think of pain. We don't think we think of a time of bliss, paradise, perfection, um, perfect obedience, perfect fellowship. But we don't think of pain. But it seems as if in this surgery that that Adam was was actually had to be put out. Okay, he had to be put into a deep sleep by God so that he couldn't feel the pain. There could be other reasons why God did that, but we don't know uh, those reasons. So this could be pain. But the reason I think, maybe a better proof for why, there was, why I believe that there was pain before childbirth, is found in chapter 3, verse 16. Notice the curse that's brought upon woman for rejecting God, for disobeying God. To the woman, chapter 3, verse 16, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Do you notice what part of the curse of the woman was? That I will greatly do what? Multiply your pain in childbirth. What does that imply? That implies that before the fall, before sin came into the world, there very well could have been pain. And that may be why Adam was put out. But, but any case, in any case, what we do know is that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no pain. Listen as I read Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, God causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep so that he can pull a rib from him. And part of the reason I think that God pulled the rib from him was to show the unity that there is between man and woman. That, that in a sense, we are connected. That, that, that woman was made from the man. In fact, that's what verse 22 says. Look at, look at the beginning of verse 22. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man. So it seems as if God's purpose is to to make them one, to unify them in some sense, and that's why He's He's making this counterpart for Adam. 
so we see the diversity, the differences between man and woman. That man was created to rule over the, the earth and woman was designed to be a helper suitable for him, to be his complement, to be his counterpart. But now in verses 23 through 24, we see the unity or the oneness of Adam and Eve. Verses 23 and 24. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God said that it was not good for man to be alone. That is, that Adam was not, it was not good for Adam without Eve. Verse 18. And so man's rib was used to form the woman. And, and what Adam calls Eve in verse 23 at the very beginning is that she is now bone of my bones. That she is literally made out of the man. She is made out of his rib. That she was taken out of the man, as verse 23 says. But not only that, she was, she's not only bone of his bones, but also flesh of his flesh. And this seems to indicate that God also took some fleshly material from Adam to use to graft into this creation of the woman, Eve, that, so that both the rib and part of his flesh were used to create this, this um, woman. And what's interesting is that at the end of verse 23, even her name is taken from his name, Right? She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now this works really well for our language because woman has to use the, the letters from man in order to make the word, right? Well, that's exactly the same way it works in the Hebrew language as well. In the Hebrew, man is ish. In this verse, it's actually ish. I-S-H would be the transliteration. And the, woman's, it, the woman is isha. So, she shall be Isha because she was taken from the Ish. Or she shall be woman because she was taken from the man. That, that not only in the, the rib and, and the flesh, but also in her name is re really taken. And so, maybe a more literal translation was, would be for woman would be female man. Hey, that doesn't sound very appealing, but the idea there is that she is unified to, to the man. That she has a connection with him. And so that means that only a woman partakes of humanity with, along with the true man. Not animals or any other creature, only the woman. We, see, we continue to see the, the unity between Adam and Eve in verse 24. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19, because I want to show you who's talking. What it sounds like is that Moses is talking here. So, so after Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be woman for she was taken out of the man. Then it sounds like Moses includes this little um, phrase here. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and join, be joined to his wife. But notice what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Notice who he says was speaking. 
Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing Him and asking Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And He answered and said, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Okay, so who's, who is Jesus speaking of in verse 4? Have you not read that He who created them... Who is that referring to? Okay, God the Father, right? So, look at verse 5 and it says, And said... So, that's a continuation of this One who created them. So, God is the One who said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Okay, so turn back to chapter 2 of Genesis. Because sometimes what, what people... Well, this is maybe a late addition from Moses... And he's just trying to apply it to the people of Israel and so that they can see. And Moses did include that for a reason, but ultimately Jesus said that it was God who was speaking here. So what is God saying? He's saying that the man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. What does it mean to leave one's father and mother? This doesn't mean that a man will dishonor his parents, that he will reject everything that his parents have ever taught him. There is still an obligation to honor our parents for how long, according to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. How long should we honor our parents? For as long as we live. So that means that even after our parents die, we can still honor our parents. We continue to do that as long as we live. But... Can you think of a stronger relationship that a child has in this world than the relationship that he has with his parents? Is there a person that a child is more closely connected to in this world? No, there's not, right? But what Moses is saying is that you need to leave that close connection and be joined to even a closer connection between you and your wife. And so what, what God is saying here through, through the author Moses is that this relationship between husband and wife is even more closely connected than blood. Okay, we say that blood is thicker than water. But God's saying this marriage relationship needs to even be closer than that. When it comes to marriage... The, the, the relationship between the man and the woman who are not related by blood, hopefully, should even be closer than that relationship that they had with their parents. So they need to leave their father and mother. And so this further supports the oneness of the couple, that they come together in a way that's closer than the relationship that they had with their parents. And what do they do? When they leave their father and mother, what do they do? The end of the verse tells us and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. At the very least, this is a physical union, that they become one flesh. But the word one here, I think, means more than that, more than simply a physical relationship, because the word one here is also used in a famous passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is... One. Alright, so that's talking about more than a, a physical relationship, isn't it? When, it's, when we're talking about the Godhead, 
It's talking about oneness in being, in purpose, in direction. This is what um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, saying that, that this relationship that starts with marriage and the consummation that follows is a very serious thing. He says in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Why is it that when a man joins his body with a woman, that they become one flesh? Because of this original principle that God laid down. That this is a serious relationship. And it should not be taken lightly. God takes physical intimacy very seriously. It's the joining of flesh and should not be treated lightly. But this means more than physical intimacy as I stated earlier. It means joining together in a relationship. If a couple never spoke to one another and only shared a physical relationship, wouldn't we find that kind of odd or abnormal? Well, physical intimacy is important Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. God intended much more than that in the marriage relationship. Mark chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, Jesus quotes from this passage and adds this thought. Therefore, what God joins together, let no man separate. He's not talking about physical unity there. He's talking about more than that. That the marriage relationship is a partnership that the woman is complementing the man in more than just physical ways. And so what we find from this original creation is that God designed marriage to be permanent. Isn't it interesting that in the institution of marriage here with Adam and Eve, it is said that a man should leave his father and mother when they had no father or mother, did they? So what do you think that's that's saying for us? That it's not, this pattern here or this purpose that God is laying out, that, that they should be joined together and stay together and remain together and what Jesus says, let no man put asunder, that this is more than just for Adam and Eve, right? Because it says that they should leave their father and mother. So that's a pattern that continues on for as long as what? As long as people have a father or a mother. And how long will that be? So, God is indicating that this marriage relationship is permanent and ongoing, that it should not be separated. And that also means that this relationship is more than a physical one. He intends that it will not be separated. separated. Yes, marriage does include a joining of the bodies physically, but it also includes a joining of personalities, a joining of emotions, a joining of morals, right? This is not exactly, um, this is actually a negative example, but but I want to just make my point here that it is a joining of morals. Remember what God said to the people of Israel, that you shall not marry the foreign women. Why is that? What was the purpose of that? Because they were a different color skin, or was it because they had little different uh, 
cleanliness laws. Well, not exactly. It was because that you would adopt their foreign gods. You would start to follow their foreign gods. Do we have an example of someone who did that? We have lots of examples, but Solomon is the most well-known with his thousand women that he followed or, or that, that, that he took to be his wife or concubine. He, he really, in that, those relationships, joined in morals. And what we find is that later on in life, we find Solomon sacrificing to these false gods, which is exactly what God said would happen in a marriage relationship. You're going to give in to, to those, those wrong morals, so don't do it. And, uh, and uh, he even went so far as to offer a sacrifice to Molech, which was the god of um, one of the false gods who would basically require... He was a god that held his hands out like this. He was made of iron and put in a, uh, a extremely hot fire, and they would offer their live children to this god on this altar. And it's recorded in, uh, I believe, the book of the Kings that Solomon even makes a sacrifice to this false god. It's a joining of morals. It's more than just a physical relationship. It's a joining of personalities, emotions, morals, and then, of course, spiritual values. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what relationship does a believer have with an unbeliever? Or what relationship does God have with Belial or light with darkness? In other words, it doesn't work. Okay, so don't do that. That means that when you're going into a marriage relationship, that you need to make sure that, that you're on the same page spiritually. Now, certainly there are uh, exceptions for that when people have already been married. That doesn't mean you have to leave the marriage. Paul talks about all the, those ex- exceptions, and I don't have time to go into those, but uh, I would encourage you to look at those passages. So a person could argue, well, I'm only getting married for the physical relationship, and what God is saying is no. The marriage relationship is much more than that. You see, what God is doing in the designing of marriage is something far different than the physical relationship that animals have when they come together. And it's different than the relationship that a man has with his multiple wives. It's different than the, the husband who treats his wife like a piece of property. Okay, this is far different. The, the, the ideal uh, institution of marriage that God is laying out is supposed to be a one-flesh union between a husband and a wife to be a beautiful picture of sweet fellowship together. Notice, who becomes one flesh? Verse 24, And they shall become one flesh. Speaking of the man and the woman. See, God didn't create multiple women for Adam. God didn't create one another man for Adam. The clear design in Scripture for marriage is one man and one woman. Any other marriage is opposed to God and His design. And perhaps you're thinking of, of the godly men who participated in polygamous relationships. And again, I don't have time to get into all that, but I would say that that was against the pattern of God, against the command of God. 
And so what we learn here in this passage is that God made you to desire personal relationship. But don't take it as a sign of weakness if you don't have that desire for a member of the opposite gender. It's not a sign of weakness if God has not given you the companionship that you desire. It doesn't mean that you are any less of a person. But marriage is the closest of all human relationships, and the way that a couple comes together is through love. That is, selflessly giving of themselves to the other. So we see the diversity of the couple, Adam and Eve, in verses 18 through 20. And then we see the oneness of the couple in verses 21 through 24. And now we see the purity of the couple in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both naked and not ashamed. What does this mean? Well, I think that it means more than the fact that they just didn't have any clothes. I think it indicates more than that. I think it indicates that they were innocent. And that's why we call this dispensation or this age between Genesis 1 and 2 the age of innocence or the dispensation of innocence. That they were not ashamed. That's the idea. That It wasn't that they just didn't have clothes, but they were naked and they were not ashamed. They had nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, are we like that today? I mean, can we be completely open about everything in our lives? Men, would it, be, would it be okay if I invited all of your immediate family and all the people of our church to come to an evening where we could watch the last 24 hours of your mind on the big screen? I mean, is there anything for you to hide, men? Or are you completely unashamed in what you think about? Women, would it be okay if I showed all of your thoughts and feelings over the last week to all of your family, your father, your, your, your children? Would that be okay? You see, we hide so much because of our sin. Even from the people who are closest to us, don't we? But it wasn't like that with Adam and Eve. They were both naked and they were not ashamed of anything. They were completely innocent. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not asking you for, for you to publicly confess all of your sins and your deepest uh, thoughts and, and, uh, and your ill motives. I, I, I'm not asking for that. I'm not a priest. Okay, I'm not your priest, I should say. I am a, a believer priest, just like you are. If you want to take that before God, then you very well should. But you don't have to come to me for that. My point is simply to say that their nakedness said something more about their condition. That they were innocent. What would it be like if you never had a wrong thought? What would it be like if you never fudged on your test at school or on your taxes? Or on that report that you gave to the boss to try to inflate your numbers? What would it be like if you never hated anyone? Or if you never lied? If you didn't have anything to hide, you would be naked and you would not be ashamed. You would be completely innocent. Now, the state that they're in right now here in verse 25 is very different from what we're going to find them in the weeks ahead. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. 
After they sinned, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Do you see what God ties their recognition of their innocence to? Their recognition of their own nakedness to? He ties it to them eating the tree. Who told you that? Did you eat the tree? Because that's the only way you would figure that out. Before you had nothing to hide. And so what God is saying here and what we're going to see is that disobedience leads to shame. And that's why we have so much to hide. So what we have here in chapter 2 is, of course, God completing His incomplete creation by creating woman. And these first two chapters help us see the ideal creation that God had intended. A creation that was free of sin, free of suffering, free of death, free of hiding. And this also sets the stage for what's about to happen in chapter 3 because, remember, part of Moses' purpose in writing this account is to show Israel how they got where they're at right now. Because they're looking at their lives and going, what is going on? How did we get this way? And God, said, and God through Moses, shows them that this is how it was created. Now let me show you what happened to change that. And so next week we'll see the very first sin, the beginning of sin. You see, we can't understand the fall. We can't understand sin. We can't understand our own sin unless we understand what God's original design was here in chapters 1 and 2. And So that's why we've taken uh, these several weeks to go through them. Marriage is designed as a picture. I hope you recognize that, that marriage is not a final thing. It is final in the sense that on this earth we should continue it all the way until the time that we die. But I hope you recognize that there will be no marriage in heaven between a man and a woman. There will be a marriage between Christ and His church, but there will be no marriage between a man and a woman. Jesus talks about that when the Sadducees come up to Him and ask Him about that. You remember that from our study in Mark. They say, well, whose wife will she be, that is, these seven brothers who have died, whose wife will she be in in the kingdom or in the coming glory? And Jesus says, you don't understand. You don't understand that God has the power to change the physical institution or the physical constitution of a person and, and not require marriage any longer. And um, so, so really, marriage was designed for something else than simply a unity of a man and a woman in this lifetime. And that is to picture what? To be a picture of the ultimate marriage between Christ and His church. That there is a special monogamous, monogamous relationship between Christ and His church. That, that it is permanent and pure that is why in Ephesians 5.31, the church is called the Bride of Christ. That it, therefore, should be one body, not many. That there shouldn't be disunity in it. Why? Because the original marriage was set up that way. That it was set up to be unified. And that's the way that the church should be as well. And so that means 
that if we are going to destroy the institution or the image of marriage, which is designed to picture Christ and His church, it actually destroys the picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. If we treat it as light, as light, and we and we throw it off with no thought, and just say, "Well, I'll just wait till the perfect one comes around. I'll just I'll just uh, make it right on the next one." Then we destroy the image that God had intended for Christ and His church. And so to to destroy the marriage relationship is very serious in the eyes of God. Let me ask you to take your prayer request sheets now. As we turn our attention to prayer this evening, anyone need a handout? Okay, Josie.